Hey everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Vegan World. And first of all, before we get started this week, a big thank you to those who have left such positive feedback on the website and also on iTunes and for the five-star ratings. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks a million. Uh, On this week's show, we have Paul Shapiro, author of Clean Meat. How growing meat without animals will revolutionize dinner and the world. In Paul's book, he goes into quite a lot of detail on what exactly is clean meat, how it works, and the companies that are involved in making this product and hopefully bringing it to market quite soon. Now, I had heard Paul's name mentioned on another vegan podcast quite a while ago, and I thought I'd I'd take a look into who he was and uh, the things he represented and his ideas. Uh, He's got some very powerful uh, TED Talks, which you can have a look at on YouTube if you like. Um, suffice to say, I was hooked by what Paul had to say right away, and I couldn't wait to get speaking to him. Uh, the idea and the concept for clean meat, I let him explain in the interview. Suffice to say that if these products work and if they get brought to market, this is a total game changer. And Paul is also the CEO and co-founder of The Better Meat Company, who he talks about during the course of the interview. He's also the co-host of Business for Good podcast, which is well worth a download after you finish listening to this one, obviously. Uh, Prior to publishing Clean Meat, he was known for being an animal protection advocate, both uh, as the founder of Compassion Over Killing and the vice president of the Humane Society of the United States. Get yourselves a copy of Paul's book, Clean Meat. Uh, It's available online uh, from Gallery Books. So first of all, hello and welcome to Paul Shapiro. Uh, Paul, thanks for joining us on this week's show. Hey, thanks, Neil. Great to be with you. Okay, so your book, Paul, and the concept of clean meat is uh, a book that we were just discussing before the recording just now that um, I got, and this has actually seriously blown my mind. It really has. But for those who haven't um, come across this before, Can you just delve into what exactly clean meat is uh, and how does it work? Sure. So clean meat is not an alternative to meat. It is not a substitute to meat. It is actual animal meat. But instead of being uh, obtained the normal way, which is to raise and slaughter animals, it's obtained by simply growing animal cells outside of the animal's body. So you can take a tiny sesame seed-sized biopsy from an animal's muscle, and from that tiny little biopsy, you could actually grow literally tons of meat. Uh, Theoretically, you could grow the entire world's meat supply from a single microscopic scale. Uh, You probably wouldn't want to do that because people like to eat different kinds of of meat, and you might not want all of the cell, but the purpose is, the, the point rather is that there is a way to produce real meat that does not involve raising billions and billions of animals for food, and this would be a major win for animal welfare, for the environment, for public health, and for so many other purposes that are really pressing problems for humanity today. Now, you've mentioned a few of those there, Paul, without, you know, wishing to state the obvious. Obviously, there's the environmental impact that breeding these animals into existence has in terms of the, the land that has to be wiped out and the ecosystems that have to be destroyed in order to put the animals in places um, for them to graze. They also need something to eat, so the food has to be transported from all around the world into where the animals happen to be. Why have you personally chosen to get involved in this? 
Well, uh, my background is in animal advocacy, and I've spent uh, the last 26 years of my life as a vegan and as an animal advocate, and that's something that I'm very proud of. Uh, Yet at the same time, the results are pretty stark. In that time, meat consumption has skyrocketed, not just because there are more people on the planet, but because on a per-person basis, we are eating more meat than we ever have before. That's true in the United States, where meat consumption is higher than it's ever been on a per-person basis. And perhaps even more troublingly, in the places where billions of people live, like China and India, meat consumption is skyrocketing there on a per-person basis as well. So, I look back on certain animal welfare campaigns, like, for example, if you think about, in America at least, the animal welfare movement really got founded in the late 1860s by people who were really concerned about the treatment of horses in the city streets. Uh, Horses were being severely brutalized, and uh, they were our laborers, they were our transporters, and they were treated just, I mean, really, really horrifically. And so these campaigners waged all types of efforts. They tried to get mandatory rest hours for horses, watering stations for horses, Sabbath days on which the horses couldn't be worked. Uh, But then Henry Ford came along, who didn't care about horses at all, and yet he did more to liberate horses than the animal advocates ever dreamt of doing for them. He, He did something that the animal advocates weren't even asking for, which was to stop exploiting horses as our laborers. And yet that's what he accomplished. And yet there are so many other examples of this. The reason that we stopped plundering the oceans for whales uh, primarily has to do not with concerns about whale welfare or environmental sustainability, but because kerosene was invented. We no longer exploit carrier pigeons today, not because of concern for pigeons, but because it's easier to send emails. Of course, it wasn't emails that displaced them. It was uh, other types of uh, transportation that were more effective. But the point is that new technologies do have the capacity to cause great harm for animals and great relief for animals. Technology is a double-edged sword. You can use it either uh, for good or for bad. But in so many cases, technologies have ended up freeing categories of animals from really ruthless exploitation. And so I wondered, is this new category of clean meat, of growing real meat without having to raise and slaughter animals, such an example. And my book, Clean Meat, is a exploration of that promise. And it chronicles the race between the entrepreneurs, the scientists, the investors who are uh, really, again, racing to commercialize the world's first animal-free animal products. And my main interest in this is, is this a way to actually solve one of humanity's most pressing problems, which is raising animals for food, which causes so many ill effects, as you were just mentioning. And I think it's a possible solution. I don't think it's the only solution. It may not be the best solution, but I think it's a very promising solution and one that deserves exploration. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, actually, one of the things I noticed in your book, Paul, um, when you talk about technology was when you mentioned Henry Ford. Henry Ford said that if he had have gone to the public and asked them what they wanted, they'd have said they wanted faster horses, <laughs> not <laughs> yeah, actually <sorry. laughs> a proper car to actually transport them around. And I've seen the TED Talks that you've given before when you were talking about whaling and you're talking about how technology then as it was when you brought on stage the massive harpoon that would have been used back in the day to to kill uh, the whales. So... I guess that leads us on to the Better Meat Company. 
um, which I founded back in 2018. So the goal of that company was to help meat producers improve, I guess, sustainability by blending the, this new meat, if you want to call it that, um, with the startups uh, and what have you, with plant-based proteins into their traditional meats. Uh, is, so I guess the long-term view of this is to replace animal flesh as it was in the traditional sense altogether. Um, sure. So first, uh, I'm honored that you watched that talk with the harpoon. That is a real whaling harpoon, by the way. I, I couldn't believe I was able to, to get one. I don't recommend trying to bring it on a plane, by the way. Don't, <laughs> don't, try, don't try to bring a six-foot-long harpoon on a plane. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, look, there are a few different ways that we can get at this issue. So think about solution one, people eating less or no meat. That's a great solution. It's the solution I've chosen for myself personally, and I hope more people will choose it. At the same time, humanity has not shown a great interest in eating less meat. Meat consumption is on the rise in nearly the entire world right now, and it's projected only to continue going up. You know, we have nearly eight about 10 billion of us by 2050. And it's not just that we have more people, it's that per person meat consumption has been going up too. So that's a good solution, but so far has not really worked. You could then uh, make plant-based meats, meats that are like the Impossible Burger, Gardein, the Beyond Burger, and so on. And these are fantastic. I like eating them myself. I think they're great. Still, though, they are re currently represent less than 1% of the total meat market. And so um, in the United States, for example, plant-based milks are already at 13% of the market. So coconut milk, soy milk, almond milk, and so on are already at 13% of the fluid dairy market. Plant-based meats, though, even in the United States, are still under 1% of all the meat that is sold. So it has a long way to go. Now you could also have queen meat, real meat grown from animal cells, as a third option. And that is another promising one for people who, let's say, want the, what they perceive as the so-called real thing. Um, or if you think that plant-based meat is not going to ever get to the place where it tastes exactly like animal meat. Um, or if you just think that there are nutrients in animal meat that you really want for whatever reason, uh, clean meat could be a, a solution for that, of course. Clean meat is not on the market yet anywhere on the planet, and even once it does hit the market, which is projected probably by around 2021, uh, it still will be many years before it makes a dent in total meat consumption numbers. So then you have a fourth option, and that is what the Better Meat Co. is doing, which is blending. We sell plant-based proteins that we formulate specifically to seamlessly blend directly into animal meat. So we help meat companies use less meat. And so they can blend our products in at, let's say, a 30 to 50% basis so they can use dramatically less animal meat but still have the products that they're selling and, and that people are consuming. And I'll give you an example about how this might work. So imagine, Neil, that um, you are the director of dining at a corporate cafeteria in Belfast, and there is on the breakfast menu sausages that are made entirely of pork. Now imagine that you decide that you want to offer a vegan sausage next to that pork sausage. And by some miracle, it's even going to be the same price. Um, it hasn't happened before, but let's just say that happens. And now imagine employees come into the cafeteria and they see these two sausages next to each other, vegan sausage and the pork sausage. What percentage of people who would have ordered the pork sausage do you think are going to switch to the vegan sausage? What do you think? If it's plant-based, I would say... I'll give it 
Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a very optimistic uh, point of view. Ten percent. <laughs> I'm an optimist. <laughs> but yeah, that's great though. I mean, that would be a huge success story if that happened. So now imagine if, in addition to reducing demand for pork by ten percent because people switched to the plant based sausage, then imagine that the pork sausage is only fifty percent pork. So for the ninety percent of people who continue getting the pork sausage, they're only getting fifty percent pork and fifty percent plant based. You've had a much more dramatic reduction in, in pork demand by blending than you did in offering the vegan option. Now, of course, the two are not mutually exclusive. I mean, you ought to do both. There ought to be vegan options, and uh, the meat need not be entirely meat. So this fourth option of blending is what the Better Meat Co. is premised on, and we're not the only, we don't claim to be the only solution, the best solution. What we do claim to be though is an important solution. And so when you think about all four of these options, so eating less or no meat, plant-based meat, clean meat, and blending, to me, they are kind of like the idea of renewable energy. Fossil fuels are so problematic that you want lots of alternatives. You want wind, solar, geothermal, and so on. And the same is so with factory farms, that they are so problematic that you want lots of alternatives. You want clean meat, you want plant-based meat, you want less meat, you want blending, and so on. And so that's where we come in, and we think that we offer an important part of the solution, even though not the only solution. Mm-hmm. So that's the blending part of it. There are other companies out there. I know you mentioned them. You reference them in your book, uh, Clean Meat, like Memphis Meats, Modern Meadow, Hampton Creek, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, amongst others. They actually want to put an alternative out there. So when you talk about if you have a meat from the traditional sense, if it's a pork sausage, for example, that you say, if you have one that's actually taken from the slaughter of an animal or one that's mm-hmm. grown uh, from a dish, um, why on earth would someone not want to choose the cruelty-free option when it tastes exactly the same, uh, looks <laughs> yeah. exactly the same? And I can see where you're going with that. Um, I think ironically, and this sounds a bit of a, a weird thing for me to say as a vegan, and this really came across in your book, Paul, uh, was the fact that vegans aren't necessarily the target market for these companies. These are the guys, they're targeting the hardcore, if you want to call it that, you know, the guys who just, despite all the environmental concerns that people have, despite all the health concerns that people have, uh, concerns for animal rights, people want to, and that's uh, the three main reasons people will choose to go vegan. But there will still, it's a bit like tobacco. Some people, despite all the health concerns, despite all the warnings, will still say, I want my meat. You know, I'm not going to change mm-hmm. it. This is, I'm, not, I'm just going to eat meat forever. This is where, what those companies are actually trying to tackle. Isn't that right? Yeah, Neil, you're hitting the, the nail on the head, which is that lots of people really want meat. You and I don't have a big desire to eat it, but lots of people do. And you know, like, what are you going to do? Like, we're just going to sentence billions of animals to uh, perpetually suffer in in factory farms to mm. do what we perceive as the right thing for the right reason. Uh, we have to accept that there may be shortcuts. There may be faster ways to help animals. And if we can create products that don't require such ruthless exploitation of animals that are equally good, uh, if not even better tasting, and are cost competitive and are nutritious, why not? Why not give people? Why, why not make it easier to do the right thing for people? I mean, I, I liken it in in some ways to uh, with clean energy. That you know, right now most of us are subsisting on fossil fuels, but if 
if solar energy were as cheap and easy to obtain as fossil fuel energy was right now, and you could just switch your home over to uh, to solar by just pressing a button, most people would probably do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is somewhat similar to the idea of clean meat. You mentioned something there, Paul, um, in terms of taste, and it actually made me laugh when I read your book when you, um, you went round one of the startups and they offered you a steak chip. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It actually, because I could put myself in your shoes and how you must have felt. I think you, you might have gone to go into a cold sweat at the prospect of have, happily being uh, vegan for over 20 years and then being presented with a steak chip. How, how did that actually taste, out of curiosity? <laughs> Yeah, it tasted good. Um, I definitely in, enjoyed it, uh, but it was psychologically difficult for me. And as you correctly noted, you know, clean meat is not intended for vegans. It doesn't really matter whether whether vegans eat it or not. Well, the goal is to help meat consumers consume fewer animals. Uh, at the same time, I didn't really feel much of an ethical qualm about eating it, and I wanted to be a good guest to my host, um, Andres Forgox, who's a very, very good guy, the CEO of a company called Modern Meadow, which at that time was making steak chips. Now they've switched over to growing leather rather than uh, beef. But um, I I did have some psychological barriers about eating and I was wondering what it would be like. And, you know, I wondered whether it would upset me physically. Like if, you know, you hear about Mm -hmm. some stories of people who haven't eaten meat in a long time and they get really sick or whatever, but nothing like that happened to me. I mean, it was a pretty run-of-the-mill experience. I ate it. It tasted good. The primary taste that I experienced was barbecue because he had seasoned it. And um, it didn't taste like meat. It tasted kind of like a meat-flavored potato chip. And uh, I liked it. Um, if he had offered me more, I probably would have eaten more just because I liked it. <laughs> uh, but it was a pretty expensive chip. I think for that one little chip, it was probably like $100. So yeah. I didn't want to be a, a pushy guest and ask for more. Uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, it was very kind of Andrus to offer that. And um, I'm, I'm glad to have been one of the first ever human beings to have ever consumed uh, meat that was cultured outside of an animal's body. Absolutely. You mentioned there before, Paul, the target is to get these products out to market, all being well by, I think you said, 2021. Um, that being the case, and I guess also with what you're describing, the uh, the Better Meat Company's plan to, to blend uh, the, the, the meat proteins together. Uh, if this does come to market, do you see it? This could really, this is a game changer, this. I mean, this is really the silver bullet that people like you and I who have been involved and interested in animal advocacy for for years. This could be the silver bullet that we're looking for. Would you agree? I think it could be. I'm not saying that it will be, but I do think it could be, and for that reason it's worth exploring. Uh, I mean, you know, look, you have the United Nations saying that if we don't substantially reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, that our civilization is in really, really serious trouble. That's only 11 years from now. Uh, what other realistic way do we actually think is going to uh, seriously cut down on the number of animals who are being raised and slaughtered for food uh, than these types of alternatives? Queen meat is one of them. And if the industry could scale up fast enough, yes, I think it could really become a major player in the meat market. I think that you could uh, you know, easily see a time in the future when uh, the idea – of slaughtering an animal for food 
might seem as anathema to us as, I don't know, maybe let's say taking your photos in to get developed. You know, like you think, ah, that's something that we had to do in the past, but I'm really glad we don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually remember when One Hour Photo came out, and I was so psyched. I was like, wow, we're going to get our photos in <laughs> one hour? It's like a miracle. Yeah. And today, you know, imagine if you had to wait one minute. I mean, imagine if you had to wait one minute to get your photo. You would be incensed. You would declare that your that your phone is defective. The idea of a phone taking photos is, would be even crazy to you if you were living back then. But, uh, you know, if you had to wait a minute, you'd be very upset. And so maybe in the future, they will think similarly about the idea of raising and slaughtering animals, that it's just something that we did in the past, and we're really glad that we don't have to do it anymore. Yeah, I'm laughing at the concept of having to wait more than uh, one minute for a photograph. The outrage of it all—the people will be uh, marching <laughs> in the streets, uh, complaining yeah. about the civil rights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, just imagine like the stock hit that Apple would take if there was some defective part <laughs> of the iPhone, where it took 60 seconds to get your photos. I mean, it would be catastrophic for them. Absolutely. You mentioned one thing there, Paul. Um, when you said about how you know things have evolved over time, and one of the things you mentioned in your TED talks is the, the comparison where our forefathers, uh, their views of slavery, um, and how attitudes then were different. Clearly, obviously, they were different then to what they are now. In a hundred mm-hmm. years' time, hopefully, we live in a world where what we're doing to animals today will be viewed as the same. And I thought it was a really interesting comparison you drew between the two. Could you talk to us a little bit about that in terms of how? attitudes and values shift over time and you know like you said before you know we're kind of as vegans and animal rights advocates you know we're, we're we want this to happen yesterday um we can't wait because we want to save lives of the animals you know can you talk a little bit about that yeah i think it's very easy for us to criticize the uh the prejudices of our forefathers in fact i think what i just said is i'm, I'm in i uh Unintentionally, I was paraphrasing a line from Peter Singer about that. But, uh, you know, Singer has pointed out very clearly that it's very easy for us to look back in quite, uh, with quite a lot of shock at what our forefathers thought. And let's just think about it. I mean, you know, I'm an American. I look back 150 years ago and recognize that the legitimate debate in our society was whether one human being ought to be able to own another human being or not. A hundred years ago, we were debating whether more than half the population, women, ought to even be allowed to vote. Uh, you know, and also a hundred years ago, we were debating whether the children of the poor should be first forced to work in coal mines and in factories overnight. Fifty years ago, we were debating whether whites and blacks ought to be able to even share the same water fountains. Uh, you know, and, and just 15 years ago, we were debating whether uh, gay Americans deserve the same rights as other Americans, something that's not fully concluded, but you can see the trajectory in which it's going. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that back then, taking the taking either side of those issues was a respectable view to hold. If you were alive 150 years ago, there would be lawyers, doctors, members of Congress who all took the point of view on both sides of the slavery debate. A hundred years ago, respectable members of society could disagree over women's suffrage. Fifty years ago, over uh, integration of races, and so on. And even like even 15 years ago, the pro-gay point of view in America was civil unions, not marriage. Now, you know, civil unions is the far right view on this on this really. So you can see how times change and how social views change really rapidly. I mean, these are all things that a blink of an eye ago, historically speaking, were the norm. 
to have differing views on. Yet today, if you were to publicly express a point of view that was on the wrong side on any of these, if you said that you're for slavery or you're against women's suffrage or you know you're for racial segregation, in most circles in society, you would become an instant pariah. You would probably make the news. You might lose your job. I mean, it's it would be so quick that you would be discarded from your social circles if you took these points of view. And so then the question becomes, of course, well, what will future generations think about our treatment of animals? And what will they think about the fact that we so thoughtlessly subjected animals to some of the most unbelievably heinous acts of cruelty for cosmetic testing, in factory farming, circuses and more. And I don't think that there is going to be that kind. I think that they will have a particularly harsh view of what we did to animals. But I do think that their view will be much easier for them to adopt because they will have already freed themselves from the exploitation of animals. And so it won't cause so much cognitive dissonance for them to hold those views. And what will likely free themselves from that are technologies that end up driving uh, the need to exploit animals uh, further and further lower on our, on our list of priorities. And so um, there's actually a, a really good um, uh, BBC uh, mock you comedy called, um, what was it, Carnage? Did you see that, oh, Neil? Yes, I know the one, yeah. yeah. Simon yeah. Amstel, so, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a phenomenal film. If you haven't seen BBC's Carnage, check it out. It's like, it's a, it's a comedy about a future where, um, People no longer exploit animals, and they they learn about what we used to do to them. And you might think, how could that possibly be a comedy? But I can assure you, it is hysterical. My uh, my wife and I watched it, and we were like crying watching it. It was so funny. So anyway, I, that's the, I don't think it's that unrealistic that a similar type of future might take hold. But I, I don't think that it's going to be solely because people had a transformation in their hearts and minds. So I think that's important. We should pursue that. But I think a lot of it is going to be because of technologies that rendered the exploitation of animals pretty obsolete. And therefore, it became easier. Yeah. One of the things I'm just thinking of, Paul, when you're saying about uh, Simon Amstel's Carnage uh, show was um, I remember one part of it they had kind of support groups for ex media yeah. you know it's kind of like, yeah, like uh, people, uh, people who are anonymous yeah. yeah yeah that's right it's people who were alive in both eras people who were alive both before meat was ended or animal meat was ended and and after it's pretty funny yeah in terms when you were talking about the the change in um attitudes amongst humans human animals as we are um i think you referenced right. that in one of your TED Talks, is a widening our circle of compassion to include the non-human animals. I think that's particularly pertinent um, today when I look at where you see, and you referenced it at the very start of the conversation, with the increased demand, particularly in countries like China, where they, they see, just bringing this back, I suppose, to the in vitro meat, if you want to call it that. I know it didn't, <laughs> that particular term didn't sit quite well with focus groups. But with clean meat, when they talk about how um, it's perceived red meat I'm talking about now is perceived to be the rich man's meat and consumption and demand for it is going through the roof. And surprisingly, I found one of the passages in your book referenced one of the the leading newspapers in China was saying just what we were talking about before, where if you had a piece of clean meat and a piece of traditionally farmed meat, which one would you choose? And of course, 99% of people said, well, I'd go for the clean meat. 
So yeah. the potential for these companies is phenomenal. Um, it really is. I mean, can you talk to me a little bit about who some of the people who've been involved in investing in these companies, and I believe some of the meat companies themselves are are buying into them as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. In fact, I just got finished with a European tour for the book because it came out in countries like uh, Belgium, France, Netherlands, and Germany. And uh, there's a lot that's happened since the book first came out and when these new European editions are coming out. And so I got to talk quite a lot about so many of the um, so many of the pieces of progress that have occurred during the year since that happened. And it's pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, in just go back to, let's say, 2015, there were zero companies on the planet that were existing for the purpose of commercializing queen meat. Today, there are about 30 of them. Many of them have already garnered tens of millions of dollars of investment, including investment from major meat companies like Tyson Foods and Cargill. Some of the most uh, wealthy and influential people on the planet are investing in this as well, from Richard Branson to Bill Gates. And uh, meat companies in Europe, like PHW Group, which is a major poultry producer in Germany, is also investing. Uh, It's truly remarkable at how this non-existent industry has now gone to a nascent but quickly maturing field of with lots of capital, although not nearly enough to do what they need to do, but still uh, good amounts of capital to get started and uh, the prestige of being associated with so many of these influential players in the space. So I'm optimistic for those reasons and more that people will get a chance to eat these products in the near future, maybe within the next couple of years. Um, and it will that clean meat will become one part of the solution to this problem of factory farming that has been vexing humanity for a long time. I really hope that's the case, Paul. I really do. And you know, as I said before, um, there's a lot of reasons why we all get involved in, in the vegan um, way of life as, as a philosophy, um, whether or not it's for the animals, whether or not it's for our, our own health, and whether or not it's for the environment. But when I read your book and first heard about clean meat, I was like, well, what is this? And the more research that I did about it, I thought, this is what is going to get what I think will be the hardcore, as I called them before, but the majority of people over the line. You can lead some of the people some of the way. But I think that little extra push, these guys are the people who could do it if it works. And I really think the leaps and bounds that you've described, I don't think it's that far away. I really pray to, pray to God that it isn't, you know. <laughs> uh, um, uh, if, if there's anything worth praying for, uh, that is certainly it. And yeah. I couldn't agree with you more, Neil. I mean, look, like it's easy for us who live in, in comfort. Um, certainly I am one of those people who, uh, compared to the global standard, lives in comfort uh, to think that everything is all right. But things are not all right. Uh, the planet is heating up. We've we've rendered nearly two-thirds of wildlife extinct uh, in, since 1970. We have tens of billions of animals being subjected every single year to, to uh, cruelty that is really unfathomable to us. And our civilization is at stake. I mean, it really is true that uh, the climate the climate change problem is rendering our civilization truly at stake. And one of the leading causes of greenhouse gas emissions is raising animals for food. So when you look at all of these, and you think about antibiotic resistance and other public health problems associated with this, with this you just realize, what else are we going to do? 
I mean, is there like a shining white knight coming in to save us? No. Like we need actual solutions that are realistic. And if we're just going to depend on trying to change hearts and minds alone, it's going to take too long, if ever. And I'm not saying I'm against that again. I mean, I think that's important work. I support it. But we have to supplement it with technological advancements that can help make this job easier for us. And the uh, the field of cellular agriculture, raising animals, is going to help us accomplish these goals much faster than we could without it. Clean meat. How growing meat without animals will revolutionize dinner and the world by Paul Shapiro. I strongly recommend you get yourselves a copy, uh, wherever it happens to be. Um, it could change your life. It's probably going to change the world, and I really hope it does. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing. Neil, it's my honor. Thanks so much.